Well, good morning, everybody. Special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And a special, special, special welcome to the moms. Where are you at? Yes? Give the moms a round of applause if you would join me at. If you're a mom, all of us non-moms would like to say something to you. We would not be here without you. That is my favorite Mother's Day joke, and I only get to use it once a year. So anyway, uh, we're in this series called 50, and we named the series after what was really an impossibly significant time in human history, the 50 days that separate the crucifixion of Jesus and the birth of the church. And it's no exaggeration to say that these days changed the course of human history. In just a little over seven weeks' time, well, I made us a slide. Here's what happened. Jesus returned from the grave. He spent 40 days with his disciples revisiting critical information with them, which all of a sudden they had ears to hear. And as we said all along, when your teacher predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you just listen to whatever else he has to say very carefully and you take notes. Uh, then after the 40 days, he sends them to Jerusalem to wait and he promises that they're going to receive power from God. And they had no idea what he was talking about. But again, he had returned from the grave. So you just do what he says. Uh, then he ascended into the heavens while they watched in wonder. And then finally, on the 50th day, 3,000 people in the city of Jerusalem become Christians. And the church explodes to life. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, but during this series, and we're taking a look at these 50 days in detail, because I'm convinced that they really do set the stage for the following 2,000 years of church history. So that's kind of where we're going in the series. For today, though, I want to focus in on what might be the most famous second chance in all of human history. It's a moment when someone learned that their failure, and it was a massive failure, they learned that their failure wasn't final in the eyes of God. It's a moment that can inspire hope for you and me when we reach those spots in life when we wonder if perhaps our life is functionally over and we wonder how in the world we can hold on to hope. I think from time to time we all need a second chance. Um, I, as I was preparing, I was thinking back and just a few examples from, from my life and journey. I think of a friend uh, who needed a second chance after a failure in business. And it was a catastrophic failure. Uh, he launched the business with a lot of hope and with a lot of trust that what he would do would work out. He stretched, he risked, he reached, and things just did not go as planned. And as the business began to spiral down, he got a bit creative with the finances and eventually found himself facing bankruptcy. And as he and I sat together and just sort of processed what he had experienced, he was at a space where he really felt like his life was over. He described a moment for me where he was sitting in Chicago at the back of a Starbucks, drinking a five and a half dollar latte that he could not afford, and just thinking, is this the end? Or is there a future that's possible after a failure like this? Is there space for a second chance? I also think of a friend who needed a second chance after the failure of a relationship, and it too was a catastrophic failure. The way she described it to me, she said, when I met him, I felt like he was the promised one. He was the one who was sent for me. And she said, he had the hair, and he had the car, and he had the confidence, and I felt like I was going to get swept up in this incredible adventure with him, and our wedding was 
unbelievable. It was perfect, she said. But unfortunately, the wedding ceremony and the wedding process was a lot more fun than the marriage. And she said, it was rough. For years, it was rough. And eventually, it collapsed. There was a divorce. And she said, you know, I found myself, she says, I certainly wasn't innocent. I did some things during the process that I wish I could take back. But she said, I remember the moment I was sitting at Applebee's with a friend. And you know it's dark. I'm just kidding. Some of you. <laughs> Applebee's franchisee stands up. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, sitting at Applebee's over a blondie with a friend and just going, is this the end? Like, I don't know if I can do this again. I don't know if I can trust again. After what I did, if I were God, I'm not sure I would trust me with another human being. Like, is this the end? Is my life functionally over. Finally, I think of, of many of us who've needed a second chance after a moral failure, and those come in all sorts of colors and flavors. These are the conversations that are common in, in my line of work, and, and you know how it goes, right? We've all been there. You knew it was wrong when you did it, and you did it anyway, and then you got caught, and there were consequences, and the pain and the regret were suffocating and you couldn't really see a clear way forward. And you lay in bed at night and you looked at the ceiling and you wondered why any rational human being would ever want anything to do with you again. And moreover, you suspected that God didn't want anything to do with you after what you said, after where you clicked, after what you did, after who you messaged. I mean, those thoughts of like, I've gone too far. I've, I've done too much. I'm not trustable anymore. I mean, in a room this size, like, I'm well aware that a few of you feel that way right now. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. That and you have to take mom to brunch. So that, that works too, right? But, but like, if you're honest, you haven't been to church in a long time because you feared if you entered the building, the roof would fall in, right? Like God would send some sort of lightning bolt to just take you out because you're almost convinced that God is done with you. And if that's you and you're here today, and maybe you're even here and you're thinking, maybe I'll just give God one more one more chance. Like, I'll be here for mom. One more chance, God. You know, communicate some sort of hope or that you care about me. And if that's you and you're sitting here, you're like, dude, I cannot believe that he's saying this right now. I mean, this is like somebody's been reading my mail. But if that's you, what I want to do is give you the punchline for today right now in case you fall asleep or need to leave or whatever, right? Um, and it goes like this. However horrific your failure, God is not done with you. However horrific your failure, God is not done with you. He still loves you. He still pursues you. He still wants the best for you. And here's why. He's a perfect heavenly father who never gives up on his kids. Ever. And whatever's in your past, he is for you. He wants a relationship with you. Even after what you did, even after what you said, even after you were unfaithful, even after you let everybody down, he is inviting you this morning from the midst of your mess to take the first step to follow Jesus. And the fact that you feel unworthy is actually a great place to be, which is a little bit counterintuitive, because in that space, you are actually ready for an authentic encounter with the grace of God. In fact, our big idea for today says it this way. Failure is an opportunity for an authentic encounter with grace. And major failure is an opportunity for an authentic encounter with major grace. And whenever I share stuff like this, I get this question from the cynic in the room. And they're like, well, that sounds really great. In fact, it sounds too great to be true. Where in the world did you get an idea like this? And I always smile and I just say, Jesus. Because 
of, in part, the story I want to unpack with you today. In fact, during the 50 days after the crucifixion, Jesus has an interaction with one of his closest friends who had led him down in a major way. And by watching how Jesus treats him, I think we can get a sense of how Jesus wants to treat us when we fail in all sorts of ways. And, and in the story we get to unpack today, honestly, uh, he didn't suspect that Jesus was disappointed with him. He actually knew that Jesus was disappointed in him. So that's kind of fun to think about. But anyway, as we enter the story, just to kind of set the stage, you should know that God has moved in ways no one was expecting. After a brutal death on a Roman cross that brought the Jesus movement to a screeching halt, Jesus appeared very much alive to his first followers. And it was an experience, as we've said all along, that was simultaneously unexplainable and undeniable. I mean, the disciples of Jesus had more than a few really great questions that faded into the background when they were confronted by something that was simply incontestable. Jesus had returned from the grave. He was alive again. I mean, they thought his death was the end, but as it turns out, it was only the beginning. And the disciples were ecstatic. They couldn't wait to see where the story went from here. They couldn't wait for the next chapter to begin. They were excited. All of them, not all of them. In fact, one of the disciples, one of the most famous disciples, a guy named Peter, was wondering if Jesus would ever trust him again because, because he had denied Jesus in what had become the darkest hour of his life. At the Last Supper, and you remember, fortunately, somebody was there to paint a picture for us. That was a joke, right? Uh, Peter had made a promise, and Jesus had made a prediction. Now, when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, Peter's always the impulsive disciple. He's always the first one out of the boat. He's the first one to tell you that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. So he's impulsive. But during this dinner, Peter is swept up into the moment, and he says this to Jesus. He says, um, he says Lord... I am ready to go with you, like anywhere, to prison, to death. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And I think the other disciples thought, man, that is bold. Peter's leading us. That's awesome. And Jesus has this other thought because, well, he knows what the future holds. And I don't mean the distant future. I mean like the next 24 hours. Here's what Jesus looks back at him and says. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. Like, Jesus, you know him? No, I've never heard of the guy. Don't know him. And that, that thought would have been inconceivable to Peter because in that moment, he really believed what he said. He believed he would do anything for Jesus. And he had good reason. He had seen Jesus demonstrate the power of God over and over and over again. He'd seen him heal the blind. He'd seen him raise the dead. He'd seen him calm the storms. He believed that Jesus was going to change the world and that he would get a front row seat to the action. Moreover, at this point, Peter had already given everything to follow Jesus. In that moment, he meant what he said. He couldn't imagine denying Jesus. But a few hours later, it happened. And it happened three times. And as Peter is denying Jesus the third time, Luke gives us a really fascinating detail. He tells us that the Lord, speaking of Jesus, as he's denying him the third time, turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine what happened in Peter's stomach? I mean, it's one thing to deny Jesus if Jesus sort of never finds out, but he's Jesus and he would have, but in Peter's mind, there was a disconnect, right? But then in that moment, as the words are coming out, I never knew the man. He looks over and locks eyes 
with Jesus. And Jesus has been arrested. And Jesus is about to be tried. And Jesus is about to be convicted. And Jesus is about to be sentenced. And Jesus is about to be hanging on a Roman cross. This is the most vulnerable moment in Jesus' life. And Peter denies him. And Luke tells us that, and Peter went outside and wept bitterly after, after that encounter. I mean, you just imagine what he would have been feeling. I made a list. Maybe you felt this way. That was a joke we all have, right? Exposed, embarrassed, afraid, disappointed. How in the world could I have done that? How in the world could I have said that? And to make matters worse, by 3 p.m. That later that day, Jesus had been crucified. There was no time for a conversation. There was no time to apologize. There was no time to repair the relationship. And so, like the other disciples, when Jesus hung on the cross, Peter was disappointed and he was confused and he was disillusioned. But for Peter, for Peter, there was more. Because he had a knot in his stomach, but for different reasons. So he had broken his promise. And he was convinced that he would carry that regret for the rest of his life. And then there came the moment on that first Easter Sunday when Peter had come face to face with Jesus again, back from the dead. He had seen the wounds that Jesus had sustained on the cross and he had heard Jesus speak of a new hope, a new power, a new beginning. But he wondered in that locked room in the city of Jerusalem, have I gone too far? Have I done too much? Would Jesus really want anything to do with me again? And that is the context for the passage I want to explore with you for the rest of our time today. And as we enter the story, the scene has changed. The setting is now the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is a picture uh, from a site on the Sea of Galilee, uh, generally known as the Primacy of Peter. And this is the space where the events that we're going to talk about actually happened, or at least this is where they built the church, and you can go remember them happening there. But it's along the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and as many of you know, we're going to take a trip, not all of us at the same time, but next year there's an opportunity to go with some folks from Keystone and check this out for yourself. But uh, 75 five miles north of the city of Jerusalem, and the setting is significant we're very near in the story, the space where Jesus first verbalized to Peter, follow me. And as the story opens, uh, Peter is doing what he was doing the first time he heard Jesus say, follow me. In fact, Peter and the other disciples had been in a boat fishing all night and they had caught nothing. And Jesus appears on the side of the shore and tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, which makes absolutely no sense unless, once again, the teacher who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off tells you to, and then you just do it, right? And so they throw the net over the other side, and when they do, they couldn't haul in the catch of fish. John records that they caught 153 fish, which I think is awesome because somebody counted. <laughs> and uh, John recognizes Jesus, looks at Peter, and says, it's the Lord. And then check out what Peter does. This is so, so crazy cool. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. He was going to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. And just a question, why was he so excited? I think since the encounter in the locked room in Jerusalem, it's all Peter had thought about because he had come face to face with Jesus and he hadn't said anything. And so he carried this sense like, I, I can't let this opportunity slip away. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to try to make it right. I can't completely, but I want to at least have a conversation with the person I offended. Have you ever been there? 
I think we all know what that feels like. We made a poor choice, and then we live with the sense that we let someone down, and we're not sure we're ever going to get a chance to talk to them again. And then one day, we're at like the airport in Atlanta, and we glance across the terminal, and they're eating a Cinnabon, <laughs> having a spiritual moment, right? And we think, I got to say something. I got to verbalize my regrets. I, I want to try to say whatever I can to maybe hopefully repair some of the damage. I mean, I can't go back and do it differently. I don't have a time-traveling DeLorean. That didn't turn out well anyway in the past, right? But, but maybe, just maybe, I can put some salve on the wound. And so Peter is swimming. And John tells us, as the other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and there was a fish on it, which is awesome because they had been fishing all night and couldn't catch anything and Jesus is having breakfast. I love it, right? And some bread. And Jesus said, come, come, have breakfast. And, and, I, and I, I just love that. It's almost like, you know, Jesus comes back from the dead and he's like, man, I have just been to hell and back. I am so hungry. Yeah, so you guys want to eat? Anyway, here we go. Sorry, that's a bad, bad pastor joke. Sorry. Okay. There's a book of pastor jokes that I use. I'm just kidding. All right. Let's. So when they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, and notice Jesus knows they have unfinished business. I mean, he swam and Jesus like, we got to have a talk. And it's not really for my benefit as much as it's for Peter's benefit. But here's, here's what Jesus said to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, son of John. And, and just, I mean, that's, a little detail, but he doesn't call him Peter. And that's interesting because Jesus renamed him Peter. So he's back to Simon. It's back to the start. It's a reboot. It's a second chance. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And you're like, what are the these? Well, these are the fish. It's kind of weird. Do you love me more than fish? No, right? But what he's saying to him is like, your life is going to move forward from this place. And I need to know what kind of life you want. Where does your life go from here? Do you want to spend your days fishing for fish or do you want to spend your life seeking lost people? And it's the same invitation that Jesus had made to him before. On the first day, he followed Jesus, but by his actions, see, he'd broken trust with Jesus. Nonetheless, Jesus asks him, Jesus invites him to consider what life do you want moving forward? And just imagine for a moment what hung in the balance. We know what Peter chose because Peter went on to spend the rest of his life telling people about Jesus. Peter changed the world. So Peter says, yes. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And throughout the New Testament, you have the language of shepherding. Pastoring is shepherding. It's, it's taking people and guiding them through life to safety. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Sheep, in spite of the denial, three times, Jesus asked Peter, where do you want to go from here? He meets Peter in the midst of a mess of his own making and invites him to move forward. Peter, your life isn't over. If you're still breathing, I'm still inviting. And for some of you, that is a message that you need to hear because your, your suspicion is that God is done with me. I've done it wrong so many times. I've made it an art form, right? But it's like, listen, from the midst of your mess, hear the voice of your heavenly father inviting you to move forward. 
You say, okay, well, that's settled. No, it's not settled. Check out how it continues. Again, Jesus said. So Simon says, yes, again. Simon says, there it is. Simon said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And Peter's like, we just, Jesus is getting weird again, but okay. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Is that different than lambs? Not really. Is Jesus trying to clarify something? Not really. It's strange. Until you consider the context, right? Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus is asking Peter three times about his commitment. Next slide. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three denials, three invitations. And each time Peter says, yes. Yes, you know that I love you. In fact, look at this next slide. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You knew I was going to deny you three times because you told me that and I didn't believe you. And you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so three times denial, three times invited. Peter gives him the response. I'm gonna, I want to follow you again. I, I want to follow you. I want to spend my life hunting for lost people, telling them what has happened in and through your life. And, and so Jesus, as he continues, gives Peter a really difficult prediction. Here's what he tells Peter. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And most scholars believe in this moment when he says, you will stretch out your hands, he is predicting Peter's crucifixion. In other words, if you follow me, this is not going to be comfortable. If you follow me, you're going to face resistance. If you're going to follow me, you're going to find yourself sandwiched between the temple, the Jewish establishment that is going to be set against us, and the Roman Empire, who for 300 some years is going to be set against us. This is not going to be easy, Peter. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. This is a difficult prediction about Peter's future. And in fact, Peter was crucified, uh, actually upside down according to church history, under the Roman emperor Nero. But after that, Jesus gives him the invitation one more time. He says, then he said to him, follow me. As in, let's do this together. Let's move forward. It's a fresh start. It's a second chance. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's in spite of his mistakes. He's not too far gone in the eyes of God. Jesus still desires to use Peter's life in powerful ways. In fact, Peter's failure was an opportunity for an authentic encounter with grace. Jesus taught about grace. Jesus told his disciples the story of the prodigal son so many times. When he started, they were probably like, yeah, we heard this one, yada, 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 right? It's a story of grace. Radical, reckless, mind-blowing grace. And Peter understood the concept. And in this moment, Peter understood the reality. It's a grace that changes everything. It's a grace that meets you in the midst of your mess and invites you forward. It's a grace that picks you up and says, we're going to be okay. Let's try this again. 
So what do we learn from this reunion? I think there's something for all of us. Again, especially if you came in today carrying a suspicion that maybe God was done with you. And it goes like this. We know what the Bible says, but we really need to learn to receive forgiveness for our failures. Because when that thought won't leave you, like, I, I think I'm too far gone, I think I'm too far gone, it shuts down your forward progress. So we must learn to receive forgiveness for our failures and believe what Jesus says about us is really true. He meets us in the midst of our mess and he invites us forward every single time. He wants you to know your life isn't functionally over. If you're still breathing, he's still inviting and he still has a plan for your future. Friends, this is the message that captured the ancient world. And this is the message that still captures hearts 2,000 years later. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. The kingdom Jesus is building is not of perfect people because it would have been a kingdom of one. He would have been the only one in it. It wouldn't have been very much fun. He knows that we're broken and yet he invites us to move away from our brokenness and follow after his example. That means whoever you are, whatever you've done, you have not disqualified yourself from a relationship with God. Because a relationship with God has never been about your worthiness anyway. God doesn't love you because you are good. God loves you because he is good. One of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament is taken from a letter written by a pastor named Paul to Christians in a city called Ephesus. Here's what Paul writes. And Paul's like, you have to understand this if you don't get anything else. You have to understand. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. How am I made right with God, Paul? How, am I, how can I be in a restored relationship with God, with the creator of the universe who wants to be my heavenly father? How does that work, Paul? He says, in a word, it's grace. It's undeserved favor. It's undeserved merit. By grace, you've been saved. You've been restored through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Just so we're clear, this isn't you trying to do better. That's not what does it. It starts with grace. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, just in case you were fuzzy, right? It's not what you do. It's what God has done for you so that no one can boast. If you start thinking you're good enough to be in restored relationship with God by your activities, that always brings about pride because that's how humans are wired and it's been that way since the beginning. It is by grace that you've been saved, not by works. And friends, if you can get this truth from your head to your heart, it changes everything. And it will give you the courage to take the next step of obedience as you move away from sin and you start to follow Jesus. But you have to understand that you have to receive forgiveness from your past failures. This is a critical message for you and for me and for everyone who believes that God wants nothing to do with them because nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it is your failure that sets you up for an authentic encounter with grace. So if you came in this morning wondering what God thinks of you, may you hear the voice of Jesus saying to you from the midst of your mess, follow me because you are not beyond the grip of grace. Forgiveness is available to you. And so may you believe that God has a future for you and that that future starts today. May you believe what he says about you is true even when it sounds too good to be true. Okay.
Would you stand and I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. It's the currency on which, the only currency on which a relationship with you is even possible. And so we confess once again this morning that we are imperfect creatures who make destructive choices that harm ourselves and others. And we confess as well your reckless love that continues to pursue us continues to remind us, if you're still breathing, I'm still inviting. And so I pray moving forward, we would carry with us a sense that you are for us, that you love us. And that it is that love that empowers us to turn from sin and to trust you about where life is found. So we thank you for the invitation. We thank you for the grace when we fail. Most of all, we thank you for your love embodied so brilliantly in your son, Jesus. I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. Happy Mother's Day.